1: Normal programming resumed here on the minefield, whatever that means. Uh, we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Waleed our is my name, Scott Stevens, is my co-host. Uh, and when I say normal programming or normal service resuming, I, of course, refer to the fact that the Ramadan series is over uh, for another year at the very least, and uh, we return to the world, I suppose, <laughs> is, is the way to put it. Although perhaps we return in a slightly different way. Yeah. Now, I've got to say, Scott, a bit's gone on in the world. It's true. One of the things that's interesting, we had a, quite a lengthy conversation about what's gone on that we want to talk about, mm. because in some ways this episode isn't about what happened in the past week, or like it often isn't, I suppose, the one after Ramadan. It's about whatever's happened in the past month that's kind of grabbed, grabbed us. Mm. And we're in the middle of an election campaign, I don't know if you'd noticed that, in which weirdly not much has happened. True. But one or two things maybe have happened and one or two events overseas have happened that might help us discuss what hasn't happened here. Anyway, I feel like I'm going further down this borough of... <laughs> I'm happy for you of, to keep going. This is hilarious. Yeah, just so we end and it's weird because I this know not you know what this I'm is actually about? sounding
0: like—an issue, uh, an episode of Seinfeld.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is without the punchlines. Yeah. Anyway, I had to convince you a bit about talking about this one today. Why was that?
0: Hmm, that's a very, very good question. And in fact. You did have to do some convincing, but it wasn't due to an unwillingness on my part. The topic is very, very important and, in fact, quite personal for me. Um, I I guess I just worry sometimes about when we go down the path of trying to reflect both descriptively and normatively on the goings-on in other nations. The extent to which we can detach ourselves sufficiently from what is quite concrete, what is specific, what is unique about that particular place, that particular conflict, that particular history that attends to that particular group of people, and the extent to which we can, I suppose, extrapolate out and ask, well, to what extent is this a symptom? Is this a parable of? Can this shed light on a broader, say, ethical, geopolitical, geostrategic question? So, I'll, I'll confess to you, Willie, that I, I would have bet, if I was a betting man, a certain, a not modest degree of money on the idea that the 2022 election campaign, federal election campaign, was going to be dominated by domestic issues. And, I mean... Yeah, as it always is. Yeah. Yes, but that the issues surrounding, say, COVID... Yep. The international issues, I'll just put it that way, of supply, procurement, and so on, the opening of or the closure of borders, of international travel, and so on, that those had uh, receded sufficiently that it wasn't going to be a big election campaign. And I also was fairly certain that the situation in Ukraine was as one-sided an issue. I mean, Boris Johnson, I don't know if you saw this, Willid. He said this conflict is the closest we've come in decades to good versus evil. <laughs> yeah. I found that quite, quite astonishing. In other words, there's not really a debate to be had about Ukraine. Maybe a debate about the extent to which Australia is willing to, to provide funds, military equipment, and, and so on. But it's not really the stuff of an election campaign. So I was shocked, shocked, I say, when the Solomon Islands became a fixture in Australia's federal election. Can I just pull you up on that word? Yeah. Fixture seems too strong.
1: Yeah. Passing fancy, maybe? Oh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. You think there's more to run? So we're talking, of course, about the security deal Hmm. between Solomon Islands and China Mm -hmm. and then the pyrotechnics that are unleashed in domestic politics. Although, to some extent, well, at least my plan is not to talk about those pyrotechnics quite so much. Mm -hmm. But I feel like already... It was a week ago that that was dominating, maybe the week before, the election debate. And I feel
0: like it's gone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, Which I think actually says something revealing that might be relevant. Yeah, yes and no. Maybe, maybe. But it was striking that what we had last week then was the Solomon Islands Prime Minister, uh, Manasseh Sogavari, come out in no uncertain terms and really stridently criticise Australia's response. To the news and to the reporting of the final security agreement, which incidentally we've not seen. I've certainly not seen uh, drafts and apparently quite reliable drafts and drafts that probably bear a striking resemblance to the final security agreement. I mean, no one outside of that nation uh, or outside of China as well has seen, I think, the final text. Uh, but we are, we probably have a pretty good sense about what's in that text. I think what was so interesting to me, Walid, is the extent to which the news which broke in late March, and then was being more fully reported early April, just how quickly that became a domestic political issue. Yeah, that was really interesting to me. And I think it became a domestic political issue on two fronts. To some extent, it reflects the degree to which there is a thick relationship between Australia and the Solomon Islands. It's a relationship that has to do with proximity, although maybe not quite the proximity that some of our federal politicians have been trading on over the last few weeks. We can come back to that in a second. But it's a, it certainly is a relationship that's borne out by the provision of substantial, significant, right to this day, amounts of aid to our close Melanesian neighbor. But it was also a relationship that I think was, I'm not sure if solidified is quite the right term, but it was further deepened by Australia's involvement between 2003 and 2017 in the regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands. Oh, Ramsey. Ramsey, yeah, yeah, which many people would be aware of. Essentially, uh, police and military personnel were deployed to Honiara to help the nation come to grips with and move beyond some crushing ethnic tensions, interprovincial violence that had spilled over onto the streets of Honiara uh, and that may well have cost at least at least hundreds of lives. Here's where I say, Waleed, I used to live there. I used to live in the Solomon Islands in the early 90s. In fact, I, I lived there before I came here. My affection for the nation runs very, very, very deep and seeing places that were very, very precious to me being essentially defiled or the sites of, of, of violence, um, seeing the nation begin to cave in on itself, under the weight of of civil violence and interprovincial uh, hostility. I mean, that was just, it, I, I found it unspeakably sad. I was immensely grateful, both for Australia's uh, involvement over those 13 years, but also the extent to which during that period that was encompassed by Ramsey, I think some really, really significant work took place in helping to do a degree of I'm trying to pick my words wisely because these these have been charged in other kind of international debates, but there was a degree of capacity making a certain amount of assistance that was given to the Solomon Islands government, not just to help it overcome the unrest that had crippled the nation, but also to help deal with, I think, some of the governance issues that seeded the political territory, that seeded the political ground with fears mm. of corruption, of not just inequality, but a degree of inequality where certain classes of people were given access to certain both privileges and amounts of money, primarily through foreign investment in foreign companies or foreign interests, uh, and that that money was then being used to further consolidate a certain grip on power. It's really interesting to me, Waleed, that the Solomon Islands actually has a history of remarkably peaceful, orderly elections, despite the fact that, I mean, there are 80 language groups that are represented in the nation. It's incredibly diffuse and dispersed. Uh, tribal and clan loyalties, ethnic loyalties run extremely deep, far deeper in many respects, even the national loyalties. Uh, and yet there really has been nothing like electoral violence or political violence or uh, surrounding elections, but it's in the time in between elections that some of the deeper fears concerning uh, uh, corruption forms of essentially non-representative governance. Um, so the people who are elected do certain things in order to get elected, but then they don't necessarily serve the people that they're supposed to be representing, but rather they serve very, very specific interests. Um, so these are all things that I think Australia's Ramsey initiative did a, you know, a remarkable amount to help the nation maybe build the internal capacity to help get beyond. And so there is something about Australia's relationship to the Solomon Islands that's, that's precious, that's deep, even when I think our federal politicians may have handled it badly or misspoken certainly over the last three weeks. There's a whole core of diplomats, of aid workers, of academics that have done astonishing Astonishing work. So it's, I, I think on, on one level, it's not surprising that the Solomon Islands would be a domestic issue, uh, even though it's completely wrong to refer to the Solomon Islands as our backyard, is if there's some kind of proprietorial relationship. But it's also unsurprising And here, I'm interested to hear what you think. Not that I'm not interested in hearing what you think about some of the other things we've <laughs> just been talking about. But, you know, of course, China is going to be a domestic issue.
1: That's the reason. Yeah. I mean, you're right to point to Ramsey and its, it's relevance, its centrality in our recent relationship with the Solomon
0: Islands, but that's not why it became a domestic political issue. It was all about China. Yes. And when Barnaby Joyce said that we were running, that this security agreement runs the risk of creating a Cuba off Australia's shores, I nearly swallowed my tongue. I could hardly believe that. Why though? Not only because geographically the two can hardly be compared... I mean, Cuba really is close to the US coast. Solomon Islands really is not. But also, the degree of catastrophism that characterized the rhetoric concerning the security agreement, it seemed to me that there was a degree of irresponsibility in the way in which it was being characterized. And also, the degree to which, you know, please correct me if you think I'm wrong, but, you know, there's been a conspicuous, if we want to call it anti China, say, anti-China wariness, um, bordering on outright xenophobia um, due to fears about China's expansion into the Southern Pacific. There's been something about that rhetoric that I think is not only counterproductive and overblown, but then as soon as that gets mapped on to a nation that is incredibly vulnerable with whom we are in, a, a, a potentially vulnerable, if not actually vulnerable relationship like the Solomon Islands... Um, there are complexities in using that kind of rhetoric and then allowing that rhetoric to begin skewing something like the internal political debate within the Solomon Islands. I just found that I found that diplomatically uh, dangerous. I found that ethically incredibly problematic. Uh, You not resist? I I just don't know that I'm entitled to a
1: view on it. You know, I, I think you're probably right, but I, I don't know enough about China to judge it. I, th- I mean, I don't want to go too far down this route because this is a different show. I think mm. it might even be a show we did a couple of years ago. But um, I think one of the central problems with the question of China's emergence in Australian political life is that as far as most citizens are concerned, we have no transparency on the question. Mm. So you end up with these two schools. One sees uh, China's rise as um, broadly peaceable and China as something to be, if not embraced, then at least not to be responded to in some kind of historical fashion. And the other sees the rise of China as the great geopolitical threat of the age. Hmm. And then there are people like me in the middle who have no real way of adjudicating that. And so I just don't... I just don't seek to venture into it. Okay. So so you may be right about that. What what interests me oh, Sorry, is not... I'm 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 so sorry
0: Waleed. Can I just can I just give maybe one small explanation for why I or one small clarification for why I said what I said? I'm not weighing in on the geopolitical significance of China's rise or its M- status or the
1: interference in Solomon's domestic politics.
0: Uh um nor am I necessarily concerned about Chinese interference, well, I'm not directly concerned about Chinese interference in Solomon Islands politics. The issue for me, and this really does map on a show that we did a couple of years ago, the issue for me is seeing quote unquote, China and talking about, quote unquote, China as a kind of undifferentiated whole that then gets mapped onto Chinese persons living in places like the Solomon Islands or like in australia. so so so, for instance, There is a long history of outright uh, xenophobia in the Solomon Islands. Um, There are historical reasons for it. It reflects something surrounding the fact of Chinese mining and logging interests. It also reflects the fact of the predominance of uh, Chinese-owned and Chinese-run shops in the capital city of Honiara. Um, I don't know if you remember, Willie, but in November, December last year, uh, the latest outbreak of violence in Honiara was characterized was punctuated by the burning of Chinese shops yeah. so there is something uh, there is something already politicized about Chinese involvement in the Solomon Islands. It makes me fairly confident by the way that there won't be something like a Chinese military base or a naval base in the Solomon Islands. I I just can't. Because there's too much local resistance. There's just too much local resistance. However, the problem is, the problem is, is that China and the nation's, uh, the Solomon Islands' relationship to China is a fundamental dividing line within the politics of the nation. And so you find the prime minister himself hewing closer and closer and closer to Chinese interests, to, to Chinese diplomacy, and also, this
1: is why the leaked drafts of the agreement uh, have tended to come from the opposition there. Yes, that's exactly right. Right. Because they know, they know what they're doing in leaking that to Australian politicians or um, ex-politicians or whoever they're leaking it to. Exactly. The
0: problem, however, yeah. the problem, however, becomes that when an unpopular government, and Sogavari's government is unpopular, when that government becomes more and more dependent upon. Chinese interests, Chinese funding, Chinese support, and then the possibility perhaps of Chinese police and troops as per the draft security agreement. Then what that means is what the opposition has to trade in, in the form of anti-government sentiment, is anti-Chinese sentiment. And it means that the catastrophist language that Australia has used concerning this, then becomes picked up and weaponized effectively in a nation that has a history of civil unrest and that and that anti-chinese rhetoric then gets mapped onto the ethnic and provincial divisions particularly between Guadalcanal and its the northern island of Malaita so i just that's why i say that i think domestically the way that australia has talked about this has been really dangerous it's interesting to me that the prime minister has said that this is incredibly insulting because it questions and here i'm giving you a nice big open door for discussing what you really want to discuss, (laughs) that that this is a matter of Australia, in uh, in fact, insulting the Solomon Islands as if it's not able to manage its own sovereign concerns. Um, So I think to some extent, Australia's language has been uh, irresponsible internally in terms of our own domestic politics. And it certainly has been counterproductive uh, diplomatically in terms of the way that it may well now encourage the Sogavari government to hew even more closely to, to Chinese backing and and interest. So I think on just about every front, the way that we've discussed this, the way that we've handled the issue of Solomon Island sovereignty has left an awful lot to be desired. So I think the demarcation for this episode is, and this speaks
1: to the tension you raised earlier, actually, about how you talk about these things. You will do the particular and I will do the general. Yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> because you, your experience in the Solomons means your knowledge of that is... There's no point in me talking to you about that, you know. Um, I'll have nothing really to contribute relative to you. But I think what's interesting f- once you start zooming out, the, the bit I found interesting about the way we responded, our domestic political um, response, was that we made it immediately about us. Yeah, that's right. That's Which, true. to some extent, domestic politics is bound to do. I mean, it, that's kind of what domestic politics is, right? It, it's... It, there's a theory of domestic politics where it's about us walking through and resolving issues that we collectively face. But actually, there's, there's a subtext to domestic politics, which is that everything is about us. <laughs> and um, whether it's happening anywhere in the world or whatever, it's about us. And we are in control or we can somehow exert a powerful influence over all these events that affect us. I think, you know, at the risk of opening up a whole flank of argument here, I think we saw that um, all last year in the debates we had about the vaccine rollout. Yeah. Brian. Interesting. They, mm. they they took place completely divorced from the context of global vaccine supply and um, shortages in supply and component parts for vaccines and COVID rates in different parts of the world and all that sort of stuff. We had almost no domestic political interest in that. It was really just a question of, do we get enough for us and, and did, we, did we order what we needed to and did we get what we needed to? Mm. Um, as though we were in some kind of isolated ecosystem that had nothing to do, its some kind of hermetically sealed bubble. Hmm. Um, And domestic politics, I think too often, is a hermetically sealed bubble in the axioms upon which it proceeds, Um, which is partly, I think, why foreign policy so rarely figures, (laughs) because it sort of doesn't neatly fit into that. This is one area where foreign policy did intrude, Hmm. uh, perhaps only for a, a time, and our response was to make it about us. That is... Did we? How have we let down the Pacific? Mm. Um, what, what should our response be? And we saw Labor's response: you sort of you know, five hundred million dollar aid package, um, funding returned to the ABC to resume broadcasting in the region, all that sort mm. of stuff. And those sorts of things may be good, but they presume a certain understanding of the crisis, um, if it is a crisis in the Solomon Islands, and that is that. It is a crisis of our making and thus one that is under our control. And what gets brushed away in that immediately is all the stuff you mentioned. So, you know, all the internal politics of the Solomon Islands, Um, but also that of the four countries involved, and I would say those four countries are Australia, Solomon Islands, China, and the one we haven't mentioned, which I think is probably the most important is the United States. Yeah. And
0: of those four countries... Which, incidentally, closed its embassy in 1993 and had its first high-level diplomatic mission there, what, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago? It's just just astonishing.
1: Yeah, right. And so you're seeing this commentary now coming out of the Solomon Islands, like, oh, the US remembered we (laughs) used to do. Okay. (laughs) But the point I want to make is, of those four countries that I just mentioned, I would argue we are by far the least relevant and by far the nation with the least influence over all of this. You've mentioned China, but I think we need to unpack the United States because we haven't spoken about the United States. Mm. I think we're mostly relevant to this whole issue in our capacity as allies of the United States and unflinching allies of the United States amidst China's rise and the sort of slow but perhaps inexorable return of a bipolar world as Mm. opposed to a unipolar world where the United States is the unchallenged superpower. And here I think just a couple of things to note. The United States' presence in the Pacific has a long history. It goes back to its first colonisation in the late 19th century. Yep. Um, it's how they end up in control of places like Hawaii, mm. for example. Um, you could even throw in the Philippines. Yep. Um, you could talk about its um, military base in Guam, this great big thing in the, in the Pacific. And then after World War II, it takes control either directly or, or indirectly through kind of proxy arrangements or um, through um, pacts that they have with tiny little islands in the Pacific. They establish all of these bases and this huge military presence, right? And a lot of this after World War II is directed towards containing the Soviet Union. Mm. Soviet Union's gone away, um, but the remnants of that sort of Cold War architecture is kind of still there and they've directed sort of slightly um, more south towards China. So the apparatus that was there to contain the Soviet Union now very much looks, if you're sitting in Beijing, like an apparatus that works to contain you. Now, unless we want to hold the view that the United States is the only country in the world that is entitled to establish military presences in far off lands, and that's a view that I think you would have to argue for mm. in a way that's compelling to everybody and not just US allies, unless you want to argue that we should expect nothing less than China once it reaches a certain level of power and capability to try to respond in kind. Shouldn't we? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's just obvious. Yep. Which it's doing. Now we've spoken for a long time about you know debt diplomacy and so on, the building of Chinese infrastructure all over the place, but, but in the Pacific as well. Mm. But the question that... But the, so that much I think we understand, even though we don't really talk about it in that way. We don't understand this as China having some kind of strategic response to a US program of forward defence that begins at the earliest in the 19th century, but um, in earnest after World War II. We don't even think about that, right? We just think about Australia's funding to the Pacific as though that's the sum total. But the big thing for me is the Solomon Islands interest. And here, I don't want to talk about it from the perspective of the particularities of the Solomon Islands, because that's your job. I want to talk about it from the generality of the perspective of small states who are in these sorts of situations. Mm, that's and, interesting, And it's yeah. almost like we've had no conversation about that in Australia. Small states, and we, by, by this I mean the, the tiny islands that you, know, you, you find in the Caribbean or you find um, in the Indian Ocean or in the Pacific like this, They don't usually have strong economies because they can't build, export and and import industries. They're isolated in the middle of oceans. It's prohibitively expensive to do that. So they generally, it boils down to two options to build their economy. They Mm. have tourism, which the Solomons doesn't have, like Fiji or Vanuatu or something, Mm. That's right. or they have sovereignty sales, which is a completely bizarre concept to us. We don't really think about it. A sovereignty sale is a thing like becoming a tax haven or the issuing of stamps or passports or the issuing of um, increasingly internet domain names. Mm. Um, And a friend of mine pointed out to me that Tuvalu had the um, great fortune of recently receiving the .TV domain name, which (laughs) (laughs) could easily be very well sought after, right? So these things are part of it. But the other sovereignty sale, one of them is diplomatic recognition, right? Yeah. So... I, as a micronation, micronation is a different thing, sorry. I, as a very small island nation, I choose to recognize Taiwan. Hmm. That's a value, so I can leverage that. Or I choose to recognize China over Taiwan, which, incidentally, the Solomon Islands has done recently. That's right. So that's one thing. But the other form of sovereignty sale that we don't really talk about that much is exactly what the United States has done in places like Micronesia. Here is a pact where we get basically free military movement across you. We, we give you money, we get free military movement, and we can rent your land and build military bases or installations or other infrastructure. America's been doing that for ages. If you are a government like the Solomons government, leaving aside the internal politics for a moment, that sovereignty asset is now suddenly booming because instead of America coming in and saying, we want to do this, you've now got another bidder in the market, namely China. Mm. And if you remove the ideological overlay from this, which is what we, I think, in Australia place on it, right? As in, shouldn't you just see the world the way we want you to see it or the way we see it, that China is a malign presence, et cetera? If you remove that and you look at it in a hard, pragmatic way from the Solomons' perspective, you now have this growth asset. That is the sale of your sovereignty to the highest bidder. And if China wants to come in and make a great bid... Given the economic restraints, and I know that the Solomons has some agriculture and mining and so on, but it's clearly their they're least um, developed nation status with the UN and not a wealthy country. Mm, that's right. If you've got this boom asset, don't you cash in? And if America wants to come and outbid China, don't you say all the better? Mm. Of course, you, like... Mm. Wouldn't you be recalcitrant not to do that? Mm. I'm really
0: eager to get our guest in. Let me just... you want to do that and you can take me to task later? Well, no. Well, hang on. Let me just hold up one flag, though. And here's where I think... And this goes to my reticence about discussing this topic on this show. We're not a foreign affair show. But here's where I think the universal versus the particular maybe lets us down a little bit. And let me just say one very, very, very simple thing. Um, I mean, (sighs) one simple thing. I
1: don't think you're about to. I think you're about to say
0: several complex things. No. I'll try to say one very simple one. Okay. Um, One of the things that favors China in this instance over and against both the United States and Australia is that China is the buyer of 80% of the goods, quote unquote, that Solomon Islands produces. Yep. Um, So there's a kind of foot in the door there already that need not be a matter of geostrategic influence or sovereignty per se. The real problem, I think, and here's where I just don't see it's possible for the United States to have anything like the same foothold. The real problem is, so can we think about sovereignty both as external, as externally facing, in other words, uh, the, the face that a nation projects to the world and the basis upon which a nation says we govern our own affairs and that you can only uh, sojourn on our territory with our permission. And then there would be something like, if we can put it this way, internal sovereignty, namely the basis upon which, the legitimacy with which uh, an executive governs the nation. The problem, Waleed, is I actually think that the Solomon Islands government is, or the Solomon Islands executive executive, is wafer thin and is trapped between those two forms of sovereignty, the outward facing and the inner ruling, such that there simply aren't the lands available to the executive to make available to foreign governments. Um, these are lands that are, that are proprietorially owned by uh, members of the nation itself. Uh, the other issue, unfortunately, is that you have a a history, especially in the Solomon Islands, and this is something that could be mapped then upon other small nations, of executives which govern in a manner that is non-transparent, that's essentially opaque both to its own citizens and to the outside world, and that can then trade in certain forms of privilege and privileged status with other more powerful nations in a manner that is effectively, for all intents and purposes, corrupt. It's the issue there right? It's still you sell to the highest bidder in those circumstances. Yes, yes. But the purpose of that isn't for then the money to then flow to the population as a whole, but rather the money is then used to secure the votes that are needed to keep a non-transparent executive in power. Hmm. So so it seems to me... It's, it's still play- a function of lack of economic development. Yes, it, Oh. It, Unbelievably so. Yeah, Unbelievably so, the... so. But 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 here's where I do think Australia does, in fact, have a strategic advantage. It's not so much a securitorial advantage as it is Australia's history of aid provision does slip through the fingers of simply treating the Solomon Islands as if it's in our own strategic interest or an extension of our own domestic politics. So here's where I think certain normative questions do arise about how Australia's involvement with the Solomon Islands can in fact offer something radically different from either the, uh, the, the internal questions of non-transparent sovereignty or, or, or of, of executive discretion, and then the issues about sovereignty for sale effectively that you raised before.
1: This is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now, but you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app, or by following The Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice.
0: God, this is a complex topic. I'm so glad we've got got our guest. Uh, Terence Wood is a research fellow in the Crawford School of Public Policy at Australian National University. Terence, thank you so much for joining us on the minefield. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to the chance to speak to you both. Uh, So so look, I was going to put a question to you. I'm not going to do that. You've heard what we've had to say. You've heard some of the concerns, both internal and geopolitical. Where, Where do you want to take the conversation from here?
2: Well, maybe one thing I'll try and do to start is have a crack at synthesizing some of the disagreements that you and Walid have been having hmm. to do with sovereignty. And here's the way I'd see the importance and challenges associated with sovereignty in international relations. Um, and the way I'd put it is this, for any country, it turns out that short of truly disastrous situations, such as the um, genocide in Rwanda, usually the best defender of the well-being of people living within any particular country turns out to be its own nation state. And when other countries intervene too extensively in the operations of individual nation states, uh, as we saw in Iraq or Afghanistan, it tends to end up being pretty disastrous. So I don't think sovereign nation state's wonderful, Uh, I just think they're the least worst tool that we have available to us in the current international order for trying to improve the well-being of people living across the world. Having said that, in the Solomons case, it is a fairly problematic example because Solomon Islands is not well governed. Um, It's in the bottom quartile of all countries globally, as measured by the World Bank's government effectiveness indicators, and so uh, tangibly that means that health services are not well provided by the uh, government in Solomon Islands, the people of Solomon Islands, education services are poor, Um, infrastructure is not well maintained. So Solomon's is a sovereign nation state, and I really do think there is some value in preserving Solomon's status as a sovereign nation state. However, it's complicated slightly by the fact that the country's political elites don't do a good job of governing the country in a way that helps the people living there. I, I might add one other point just very quickly while, while I've got the microphone, which is um well, I still hold a New Zealand passport, even though I live uh, much of my adult life in Australia. So I'm a little loath to admit this, but um, at least when it comes to foreign aid, Australia is the preeminent power in the Pacific. Forget about the United States, forget about China. Australia gives more than four times as much aid to the countries of the Pacific than uh, its nearest competitor does. The nearest competitor is New Zealand. Australia gives more than five times as much aid to the Pacific as China. So the decisions made in Australia, decisions made by Australian politicians really do matter to um, the well-being of the people of the Pacific too.
1: So Australia is important in all this. I mean, I think one of the important points to recognise is you're right about the foreign aid contribution, but also that it's been preserved. Um, largely. So, you know, there's been a, f- a huge fall in Australian foreign aid. There's no doubt about that. It's been an election winner to cut foreign aid as much as possible or to pull off some move that effectively cuts it. One of my favourite moves was, I think, when the Labor government in what, about 10 years ago decided to categorise its offshore processing of asylum seekers as foreign aid. <laughs> um, so you could maintain your foreign aid levels officially, but really, look what you've done with it. If you can count that as foreign aid, then sure. So there's definitely been cutting of foreign aid, but the Pacific has been largely protected from that and the contributions that we've made over time. But I, I still come back to this point, Terence, and maybe I get you to reflect on this, that it may well be that we have a higher foreign aid contribution in China right now. But if you're looking at where you can get, you know, realise the greatest yield on your sovereignty assets, as the Solomon Islands, there's no question China is a more promising client than Australia or a more promising customer, is there? And China's particularly
2: tempting to members of some members of Solomon Islands political elite um, in that it's more willing to offer aid with fewer strings attached and perhaps more willing to assist individual politicians directly. So China does have leverage. I'm not disputing that fact, definitely.
1: And, you know, the, just the mere presence of Chinese construction. I mean, you'd know more about this than I do, Scott, but in the Solomons, I imagine it's very visible. I was in the Maldives in January, and the first thing I saw when I landed at the airport in Malay it was this construction site and enormous signs there talking about the Chinese contribution the first thing I saw. It was really, really noticeable. So you're seeing this all over the place, right? So the, the point, I guess, is where's the growth in your asset? Well, it has to be there, doesn't it? And and if that's true, that's not a bidding war that I think Australia can win. Hmm. It might be a bidding war the United States can win, or it might be that the United States would prevent the growth of Chinese military bases in certain parts of the Pacific, at least, through the use of force, you know, with unsavoury things we don't like to talk about, like installing a government that will do its bidding or, or something like that. I mean, that's possible. But as far as the, the bidding war for the sovereignty assets of Pacific nations goes we're just outbid. And, and, uh, you know, the, the model of let's restore a, or, or add certain aid and, and send the ABC in. And I'm not criticizing those as policy initiatives per se, but the idea that that's a solution to this problem, I think, well, it seems to me anyway, doesn't seem to recognize that it's, it's quite a different problem now
0: to what it might've been in decades past. Hmm. <sighs> I'm not entirely sure. Um, let me say why, very, very briefly, and I want to pick you up, Terence, on something that you said just a moment ago as kind of a passing remark that I think actually gets right to the heart of the matter. I mean, to some extent, Waleed, of, of course you're right that Australia can't win the bidding war for a kind of stock in trade in Solomon Island sovereignty. Of course that's, that's right. But you see, here's where I don't think we should be conflating sovereignty, national sovereignty with, for want of a better term, executive discretion. I think the argument can be mounted very, very, very powerfully that Australian aid and Australia's accompaniment of that aid in certain vital forms of the installation of, say, anti-corruption measures of support given to civil society and government bodies has been far more important to the betterment of the life of many Solomon Islanders then has massive Chinese logging or mining or business investment. I'm just not sure that's the question, though. Well, 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 no, it is, because those forms of Chinese investment, they primarily go to the consolidation of the power of a group of political elites. Isn't that all the better? Well, okay, Terence, please, go on. So I guess the one positive thing that
2: is that within democracies and for all their flaws, um, most Pacific Island countries are democratic. There is something of a countervailing force at present, which is that whilst uh, China might be able to procure the allegiance of political elites in a country like Solomon Islands, the more it does that, the more it undermines its own soft power mm, in those right. countries. Exactly. And China was yeah, never a particularly popular country in Solomon Islands, and it hasn't really helped itself become any more popular with the types of aid that it's been giving in recent years. Often it funds large infrastructure projects, which are uh, built entirely by uh, laborers from mainland China. And that's a source of resentment amongst people in Solomon Islands who would like to have the work doing the building themselves. Um, and so China doesn't isn't hasn't been able to make itself popular in the same way that Australia has, at least to some extent, with its more useful interventions, such as some of those which you discussed earlier associated with Ramsey. And while Solomon Islands politicians aren't quite accountable to voters in the same way that we're familiar with from countries like Australia and New Zealand, they are still accountable to voters and they can't tack too heavily against the tides of public sentiment, lest it come at a cost to them electorally or come at a different type of cost to them in the form of riots, such as the riots that we saw in 2019 when Manasseh Sogavare uh, was selected as prime minister in Solomon Islands. So the
0: bidding war is complicated. Mm-hmm. And, and this, I guess, Terence, this does pick up one of, I guess, my real concerns that I just touched on very, very briefly before. You know, it would be, it would be fanciful to think that kind of international debate or geostrategic questions were being beamed directly into the living rooms or onto the smartphones of people in Malaita or Santa Isabel or whatever, that sort of international concerns or debates are being closely followed by Solomon Islanders in, in, in such a massively diffuse, diverse, linguistically diverse nation. Um, my real concern, though, is that US and Australian debate is then picked up by, is then weaponized by, those who are opposed to Sogavari's government and who may well be willing to use the prospect of anti-Chinese sentiment or, or active anti-China fear in order to, if you like, prosecute a certain form of civically combustible anti-government violence. Maybe for the right reasons, namely to overturn a stagnant status quo but with means that are all too familiar to anybody who's been following Solomon's history for the last two decades.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting possibility. I'm not sure how great a risk it is, but I guess it's high enough that myself as someone who who cares about the well-being of Solomon Islanders would urge all international actors, be they China, the United States, or Australia, to tread carefully to make sure that whatever they're doing, they're not inflaming sentiment and that they're not acting in a way that runs the risk of sort of reviving old schisms or reheating old conflicts. Certainly, Solomons hasn't always been a particularly stable country and it would be great if uh, all international actors could tread carefully and respectfully when they work there
1: you're listening to the mindfield if you just joined us on the radio it is a radio show uh, it is also a podcast so if you're listening on the podcast well you already know if you're listening to the mindfield well e. Darley is my name Scott Stevens is my co-host we're joined by Terence Wood today research fellow in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University mm-hmm.
0: Can I can I pick up just one very brief thing, or get Terence to expand on one thing that he mentioned? Terence, you did say before that China has been willing to offer forms of investment with fewer, or forms of funding with fewer strings attached. What did you mean by that, and how would you say contrast that with the way that Australia has tried to offer provide aid to the Solomon Islands?
2: Well, once upon a time at least, particularly uh, during the Ramsey era and even in the immediate post-Ramsey era, Australia did in- engage in a way that I think you touched upon earlier in the discussion where, where Australia tried to improve governance within Solomon Islands, tried to improve the quality of governance within Solomon Island Islands and also put some constraints on what Australian money could be spent on in the country, what politicians or what the Solomon Islands government could use Australian aid to build or construct or spend. And um, Chinese aid tends, tends to come with fewer of those constraints although there are strings attached to Chinese aid, for example, if you want to spend Chinese aid building a road in Malaita or wherever you're going, well, it won't be in Malaita, sorry, Mm, uh, on (laughs) Guadalcanal, for example, you're going probably to have to use Chinese contractors to do it. However, China's probably not going to suggest that you also reform your Department of Works such that it becomes more efficient as a quid pro quo for this large road infrastructure project. So China will tend to give aid in a way that interferes with the operation of a recipient country's governance, Um, and so hence fewer strings. And that's easier to manage if you're a politician in a recipient country, which can sometimes be a good thing, but not always.
1: Is part of it also human rights concerns? Do do Australian aid programs come with human rights strings, for example, um, that the Chinese just don't worry about?
2: That would certainly be true in some parts of the world. Well, you're certainly correct that the Chinese don't worry about human rights concerns when they decide who and how to give aid, who to give aid to and how to give it. In Australia's case, human rights concerns of the traditional sort aren't um, a major problem in Solomon Mm -hmm. Islands. And so Australia doesn't have to work too hard to encourage the Solomon Islands government to provide free speech. Or to stop torturing people mm. in its prisons or whatever, but I'm sure you could find other examples of other countries where that would be an issue. Myanmar, perhaps.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah that would make sense. Um, well, can I raise the paternalism issue? Because mm. this is a, a consistent complaint from within the Pacific that Australia's attitude to the Solomon's not sorry, not to the Solomon's, the whole Pacific. Is quite paternalistic. Um, much has been made of our attitude to climate change, for example. I don't know how overstated or not that is in the context of something like this. Even just the difference in the way that China seems to treat the politicians from other countries or from Pacific nations when they come by reports, they really roll out the red carpet. They make a very big deal of it. Meanwhile, we have visas that are difficult to get. There's just all those sorts of little elements of it. Terence, do you think that? is something that plays into the situation that's kind of unfolding the increasing Chinese influence.
2: Yeah, there's an area where Australia could improve and it wouldn't even have to come at any cost to the effectiveness of its aid. Hmm. It could certainly treat politicians from Pacific Island countries with a lot more respect. That would be easy. That would just be a question of tone and it would be uh, valuable both to Australia and I think probably something that would be appreciated by the politicians in question. And then on, on top of all that of course yeah, australia's behavior around climate change in the pacific has not been good many reasons uh, why australia needs to be more constructive when it comes to climate change and in its engagement with pacific countries on issues related with climate change but one of them is that it's something that makes australia unpopular with uh, both Ordinary people and political elites in Pacific countries.
1: But the government has an argument, the Australian government that is, has an argument here when it says, well, if you want to talk about climate change and attitudes and damage on climate change, look at China. Why do we lose that argument? Well, I'm not
2: sure it's a question of Australia losing the argument. It's just that it would be easy for itself to become a much more appealing partner than China if it took a proactive stance on tackling issues associated with climate change. The current very reluctant stance that it's taking means that it's no better than China, um, which means that any sort of competition between Australia and China gets fought on other terrain.
0: Can I um, circle back to an issue that Waleed raised before? And I guess I'd invite you both in closing to maybe reflect on it. Um, If we are in fact talking about sovereignty as a commodity that certain nations, due to their geography, their placement in the world, their limited resources, the idea that sovereignty can be something that is up for sale or that is available to the highest bidder, that certain sovereign functions, if you like, can be made available. Would you consider, Waleed, that it would be the case that those nations are also going to have relatively poor forms of either governance or of political accountability so that the profit that then accrues, the benefit that accrues would not be something that would be widely distributed, widely available to the populations of those nations. That's question number one. Question number two, Terrence, if that is the case, and maybe it's not, Wouldn't the better way to call into account or to maybe place a question mark against, say, more malign or more utilitarian attempts to trade in the sovereignty of other nations, wouldn't the better way of countervailing that not to be not to do the same thing ourselves, to raise the asking price, if you like, to sort of engage in the bid, but rather to do what we can to strengthen the internal forms of political accountability such that the benefit doesn't simply accrue to a group of relatively opaque political elites.
1: So I can answer my question first, if you like. Um, I think, yeah, that's probably true that what you do get is sort of uh, the isolation of the benefit with elites. Um, I'm not confident enough to say that's the case in every example. Um, There may be well-governed examples where this sort of thing does trickle down. um, I'm not going to venture into that, but yeah, probably. The question is, how relevant exactly is that going to be in the context of elite Mm decision-making? And the answer from history seems to be not terribly. Mm -hmm. Now, you might be right that In the Solomon's Slightly Different because of antagonism towards the Chinese community there, as you mentioned, because of the, the democratic infrastructure that is in place. I guess I'm just on the side of being a little bit more pessimistic about the potential of that that if it really comes down to China wanting to flex its financial muscle, it provides something that is really, really overwhelming and that only the United States really can can step in to try to do something about. Maybe I'm too pessimistic on that, but that just seems to be my instinct. Terence, your turn to answer Scott's question. <laughs> just on on the first one very
2: quickly, I mean, I think it's true that if Australia really wanted to out if China really wanted to outspend Australia in the Pacific, it could. But the thing is, China isn't actually that interested in the Pacific. It's got economic interests the world over that it's trying to shore up through foreign aid. And so there's no evidence that Chinese aid in the Pacific is rapidly rising or that at any point in the future, Chinese aid and the influence that comes with it is actually going to outstrip Australia's um. So there's a slightly more optimistic take for you. Excellent. On, <laughs> I'm only partially convincing myself, but I think I'm getting there. <laughs> um, on the other question of, well, shouldn't Australia just perhaps try and invest more in strengthening systems of democratic accountability mm. in a country like Solomon Islands? And maybe by doing that, it would help. Uh, it would reduce China's ability of to procure the allegiance of political elites in a country like Solomon's. That sounds fine in theory, the, the, the challenge is that countries own domestic political economies proved to be remarkably resistant to outside influence in the form of aid designed to improve their governance. It's just a really hard area to elicit change. Um, and, and that was true, I can still remember the frustration of the, the Ramsey governance people Back when Ramsey was uh, the source of a ton of aid to Solomon Islands, they they still couldn't really find a way of short-circuiting the clientelist nature of Solomon Islands politics. So if you could improve a country's governance easy through foreign aid, that would be one of the best ways you could spend your foreign aid. But it just turns out
1: that in practice, it's pretty hard. Mm. This is where the particularities do, I think, prevail. Although you've extracted a a generality there, haven't you? So maybe the generalities (laughs) also do. Terence, thank (laughs) you for your expertise today. I think we're always aware that this could have been a difficult show and you've guided us through it superbly, so I really appreciate your time. Oh, no, thank you very much. It was really thought-provoking, so thank you. Terence Wood is Research Fellow in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, our guest for this week's Minefield. We're done with that. We'll be back next week. See you soon.